0: Welcome to this episode of the Chaburah, Members Only Edition. In this episode, which is the first part of a two-part series from Rabbi Aharon Haleva, the Rabbi teaches us the fundamentals of Rabbinic mysticism. Enjoy!
1: So there there it is. Acham, the stage is yours. Thank you very much for being here
2: very good my pleasure hello everybody so just one little note um you may see the right side of my face often because my computer where the camera is is here but my big screen is here so i if i can see it i'll stay looking dead on but if i need a little magnification i'm going to go over here that's what you'll see sorry about that but that's the price of age okay So we're here to study a topic I've always liked. I was curious about it since I was early teens. I was never satisfied by any answers I got. So I'm from the Sephardic community in Seattle. We are a Judeo-Spanish-speaking community coming from western Turkey, mostly the cities of Tekirdai, which is a county seat on the west coast of the Sea of Marmara, And then there's an island in that sea known also as Marmara. The people who came to Seattle in the 1903 through 1920 or 30 era came from those two cities. A few people here and there came from Saloniki, and then on and off. There was maybe somebody from Egypt once in a while, but mostly it's a uh, Judeo-Spanish-speaking community from Western Turkey. Um, And so I would ask questions of the rabbi about Mysticism, you know, there's there's a certain style of modern Sephardic rabbi who kind of leans on mystical interpretations, and a lot of this word is 200 in you know gematria, 200 numerical value, and this word has 200 numerical value, and although that's just a random fact, they we present it as somehow connected, and I always said, but Rabbi, in a in a language with 22 consonants. You're going to have hundreds and hundreds of random numerical equivalents because there's only 20, there's only so many letters to go around. And by the way, we are a root based Semitic language, it makes it even more narrow. The probability of having multiple words with the same numerical value is exceedingly high. And I never got a straight answer. So that kind of piqued my interest until finally uh, I studied old rabbinic mysticism, the kind that appears in the Mishnah, and the Talmud, in Masechet Hagiga, with Haham Fa'ur. The one summer, myself, Moshe Maiman, who's also a great Haham, I would say one of the top students of the Haham, and just the three of us, uh, once a week, for three hours, for about 10 weeks. And that's the original seed of what you're going to hear in the next four weeks. So, the very beginning of what mysticism is it's not about content it's not about here's a book with some secret knowledge i'm going to give you the book and tell you what the words mean and now you'll know that's not what rabbinic mysticism is rabbinic mysticism is not sorry
1: just mean. to let you know can't, we can't see the the slide we, we only see oh, your... oh, oh oh sorry
2: okay very good thank you yeah very good let's see so new share i guess and we'll yep. do this see it now
1: Not yet, no. You may need to stop sharing. Now we can see it, yeah. Okay, good.
2: All right. Oh, and by the way, so Zoom lectures are fine, but I'm used to give and take of an actual midrash. So if anybody has questions, go ahead and type them in the chat. And if, Sina, if you see a question that's worth pausing for, because I'm not going to continually look at the chat, just let me know, just stop me, and then we'll answer the question. Okay, so mysticism is not what you perceive, but so-called cleaning your mind's lens so that you can perceive. I don't know if you remember the Hubble telescope, but when they sent it up originally from the U.S., the mirror was distorted, and it couldn't see much. So they had to send a fix. So mysticism is like we're all born with the Hubble, with the bad mirror, and we need to fix the mirror before we can see what's up there in the area of interest, in this case, the heavens. There was an original rabbinic mysticism, and it had absolutely nothing to do with the Kabbalah. Kabbalah was written in Christian Spain, uh, maybe a thousand years ago. Yes, I understand some of the Zohar may have been earlier, a core, but it was never. Here's the key point about mysticism. What we're going to study passed through the approval of the Beddin HaGadol, the national court, which produced first the Mishnah and then the Talmud. No other book on mysticism was ever processed and approved or edited or redacted by a national court. Even if the Zohar is totally authentic, and personally, I don't believe it is, uh, nobody looked at it. Someone found a manuscript in the 13th century, and we never had a court process it. That's not the way the Israelite or Rabbinite legal system operates. Every authorized tradition has to be vetted by a court, not by a person. So there was an original rabbinic mysticism, yes, and yes, modern Jews try to find some continuity between rabbinic mysticism like you find in Masechet Hagigah and Kabbalah, but as you shall see in this series, but not tonight, there really is none. We analyze Kabbalah later in this series. Why should you study mysticism? First answer, it is our purpose as humans And now I want to show you uh, a text, which makes that point really well. Let me know if you can see this new screen.
0: Not yet. Not yet. I did new share and I clicked on this.
1: Not yet. We just see the folder.
0: So let
2: me do stop share and then do share screen again. And then here. Yes. Okay, good. So let me just, this is from Haham Fa'ur's book called Homo Mysticus. In my opinion, and it is a biased opinion, but I think I'm 100% accurate on this, this is the best work on Maimonides' guide since that book was written. So this is the best explanation of Maimonides' guide certainly in the English language, and certainly in the last 400 years, but I think it's the best since the guide was ever written. Uh, So let me, how does he open it? The underlying thesis of this work is that for Maimonides, Hebrew mysticism is an anthropological dimension and the very purpose of the human race. What does he mean? Every human being has a talent for mysticism. And in fact, That talent is the very reason the human race was created. For Erich Neumann, he's a famous Jungian analyst. He was a student of Carl Jung himself. He's Jewish. He started the Israeli Institute uh, of Jungian Psychology in Tel Aviv, I think, in the 30s. This ascertains that mysticism is, quote, a fundamental category of human experience. But here's the big difference, and this relates to what I was saying a moment ago about the Kabbalah. Unlike Newman, however, for Maimonides, the mystical experience can take place only at the final stage of human development when the individual has reached perfection. That's important. Mysticism cannot be experienced through faith or be grounded on rational proof. So it's not that some you can just believe what they tell you and, and you, you have a mystical experience. Moreover, it's not that you can prove what do you think you're seeing, it doesn't lend itself to rational proof. It's something else. Homo mysticus means a mystical man is, first and foremost, a post-rational individual. We will explain that later. Uh, okay. Ah, A serious student of the guide concluded that although faith in God is not grounded on the annihilation of rational perception, and that rational perception constitutes the very basis for man's relation to God, at the same time, Maimonides maintains that there is a perception that is higher than it means rationality, which opens the gates to a suprarational knowledge. In fact, for Maimonides, through it alone can man reach the ultimate possible closeness to the absolute. Okay, so that's important. Back to the share, back to the notes. Ah. Also, I want to just close this little thing from Hahan Fa'ur's introduction. Let's notice what he says about Kabbalah in the same introduction I just showed you a moment ago, but from page three. Let's see if I can find that.
0: Where is that? Mm-hmm. Ah, here we go. Let me know if you can
2: see this. It's a new share from the introduction. Not yet. So we've got a little bit of an internet delay.
1: We just see the folder.
0: Do I do new share again? Could do new sharing.
2: Yeah, okay. we now see it. Okay, good. So here's the key point here. The differences between the esoteric views of Maimonides and the Kabbalah developed by the anti-Maimonidians in France and Spain are too complex to be summarized coherently here. They are not, however, merely a matter of content, such as the theosophy of the Sefirot and so on. Later, I'll tell you what the word Sefirot originally meant. It did not mean emanations of aspects of God or characteristics by which God reveals none of that. They pertain to different stages of human development, expressing different um, spiritual and intellectual syntaxes and morphologies. For Maimonides, the esoterics of the Torah is theocentric. It concerns post-rational human involving a progressive process of de-anthropomorphization. That just means that we're born um, projecting our own little world on everything that we perceive. We assume people think like we think. That's why people will say such things as, boy, French people sure talk funny. And we project onto anything religious or spiritual as if God is some kind of smiling grandpa in the sky, who if you ask him for things, he wants to give them to you. That's anthropomorphization. The rabbinic mysticism is to be aware that you're doing that and let go of it. And it doesn't happen overnight, and it's not easy. But over a process of years, you realize that you're projecting and you let go of that. And then you just say, well, I don't know. I, I don't know what God looks like. I, I don't think he looks like anything, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know what God feels. Maybe he doesn't feel anything the way we feel, et cetera. On the other hand, Kabbalah is essentially ethnographic and anthropocentric. It means it projects human Characteristics, emotions, feelings, choices, will, like we say, God's will. God doesn't have a will like people do. And ethnographic, it's, it's limited to a certain ethnic worldview. Like every culture has its own mythology and its own assumptions about reality. So Kabbalah is limited. It's not a universal set of categories. Eliad, this is Mirkiya Eliad, the famous researcher on mythology. Noted that the Kabbalah is akin to the, quote, cosmic religion that disappeared after the triumph of Christianity, surviving only among the European peasants. It presupposes a system of cosmic sacrality that the rabbis tried to suppress and the Kabbalah successfully retrieved, quote, thanks mainly to the tradition embodied in the Kabbalah. The cosmic sacrality, which means there's this force that drives the heavens and all this vast, vast universe with trillions of planets and asteroids and black holes and you name it and we don't even know half of it yet it's it's infused and animated by some cosmic force and that's what they mean by cosmic sacrality by the way who believed in the cosmic sacrality albert einstein who did not isaac new isaac newton believed in the maimonidean system completely Unlike Kabbalah, for Maimonides, the content of a mystic experience is marginal. What defines the experience is the level at which it took place. To perceive the most insignificant things at the post-rational level is infinitely more exalting than to listen to the most sublime symphony at the ethnographic stage. Very good. Okay, back to the slides.
0: Can everybody see the slides now? Yep. Okay, good.
2: So before we study, so what we're going to do in this series is study the rabbinic texts on uh, mysticism known as Ma'aseb Merkabah slash Ma'aseb Bereshit, which are, which are very short. They appear in the Mishnah, Tosefta, and Talmud on uh, Massechet Hagiga, which has really nothing to do with mysticism. It's about the animal offerings you must bring to Jerusalem when you appear thrice a year for the Mu'adim, for, the, for the, the pilgrimage festivals, the Hagim. Why this material is there, when we get to it, I'll tell you. But before we read it, you have to know a few things about how to read this kind of material. So now I'm going to teach a little bit from the introduction to Maimonides' uh, Guide for the Perplexed. And since that's in Judeo-Arabic, And we're going to have to use a translation anyway, may as well use one in English, which is a lot easier to parse than the Hebrew ones, in my opinion. So having spoken of similes, he means like metaphors, I proceeded to make the following remark. The key to the understanding and to the full comprehension of all that the prophets have said is found in the knowledge of the figures. This is my ad, images or parables. In the original Judeo-Arabic, it means... Matal, which is like a mashal, means like, like a metaphor, but a graphic metaphor, like Yirmiya saw a boiling pot, which was in the north and kind of tipping over whatever was boiling inside it towards the south. You remember that? Sirnafuah, aniroe, And Yeshaya is full of imagery, but they are metaphoric images. Right? He wasn't seeing reality, he was seeing a message clothed for the benefit of his mind in images which meant something to him. So well, this translation is going to use the word figures, but that's what he means, the matal, the, the metaphors or the graphic metaphors. They're general ideas and the meaning of each word they contain. You know the verse, I have also spoken in similes by the prophets, and that's this pasuk in Hosea, وَذِبْبَرْتِي عَنْهَ الْنَبِئِينَ وَأَنُخِي حَزَنْ And I spoke... On the prophets, and I made many, many uh, visions, the. <inaudible> and after speaking to them in these images, I was imagined by those prophets. That's a very dense statement, uh, but I'll just leave it at, at that for now. Another Pasuk says, "Put forth a riddle and speak a parable. That's in Yehazkel. Now, in the book of Yahizkel, God always addresses Yahizkel as Ben-Adam. Never by his name, never by anything else. Always Ben-Adam. Why? That's a whole story in and of itself. Hod is a command in Hebrew for the... Lahod means to create or generate a riddle. Umshol mashal. And... There's a word in Hebrew, believe it or not, a verb for generating a parable or an, a metaphor um so generate a riddle, generate a parable el because that's the only way you could transmit some of these esoteric ideas. There is no way to put it into quote rational analytical terminology. It, it, you, you'll lose it. You miss it. You, it's like a dream that you know the meaning of the dream while you're in the dream. And the next day you kind of vaguely remember it. And you have to make effort to remember both for the imagery you saw and you remember knowing what it meant right before it unfolded. And that's the hard part to always grasp that the next day or the next two days later, et cetera. So, so there's mean, the meaning that's transmitted in these Images, these semantic compositions, let's call it, cannot be stated in just general prose. You, you miss the mark. And because the prophets continually employ figures, Yehazkel said, does he not speak in parables? Hello, Memashel Mishalim, who? Isn't he somebody who is Memashel Mishalim? That's the Hebrew verb again, Memashal, in Binyan Pirel, to create Mishalim. Uh, okay, fine. Next. Can you see the next page? Yep. Okay, good. So, mysticism is expressed in riddles. How would you say riddles in our modern linguistic terminology? Polysemic statements, a statement that means multiple things at the same time. Again, Solomon begins his book of Proverbs with the words, to understand a proverb and figurative speech, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. So, we still know or teach how to sing. This is Mishlei. This is the beginning of Mishle. Uh, <speaking in Hebrew> so the purpose of the book is to teach naive young men and young women about the world, about the reality of the world, and not to how not to be naive. And the way he transmits this information to the reader is in. Uh, the words of the wise and dark sayings. I don't know why he says that. Hida is a riddle. Maybe he means it's opaque. Initially, you don't know what it's talking about. Maybe that's why he says dark. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, uh, to what were the words of the law to be composed? Oh, and we read in Midrash Shir Rabbah I'm just going to read it in Hebrew and translate it myself. This comes from Shir Hashirim Rabba. You could find this on safari That's where I got it. This is the first chapter of Shir Hashirim Rabba. Oh, so what is what is the um, what were the words of the law to be compared to before the time of Shilamo wrote his three books? He wrote Shir Hashirim, Mishlei, and Kohelet. And in my opinion. The guide for the perplexed, the tone, the mood of the guide for the perplexed of Maimonides is the same as Kohelet. I find innumerable parables. The, the mood of Kohelet, if you know how to read it, and the mood of the Dalalit, al-Ha'iren, God's I mean Maimonides' guide for the perplexed are very, very similar. So what was the what was the Torah compared to before Shailomot did what he did? <inaudible> They're compared to a well, a deep well, full of water, and the waters in the deep well are cool, because remember we're in the Near East, it's often hot, you want a cool drink. Umtukim, they're sweet, which means they don't have that mineral taste, like at Mara. you know, when Moses with the Israelites in the desert, and there was no sweet water to drink. So the opposite of Mara is mitukim v'tobim and good. But nobody could access the waters, and it's the wonderful, cooling, sweet waters at the bottom of this deep, deep well. No one knew how to get it. So somebody came, and this is referring to Solomon, and he tied one rope to another rope, and one pole to another pole, uh, you could call it a cord; they call it a cord. But Mishah is just a pull. With in midnight, he thereby pulled up the bucket from the deep, deep bottom of the well. And he drank. He drank. As a result, everybody else began to pull up the water once he showed you how to do it, and they could drink the water. In the same fashion, using one word to explain another in a chain of successive understandings more and more clear, from one parable to another parable, from one metaphor to another, Shlomo was able to process the secrets of the Torah. Dikhtib, as it says in Mishle, Mishle Shlomo ben David, Melech Yisrael, Al Mishlotav shel Shlomo, Amad al Dibret Torah. So far go the words are our sages. Oops. I do not believe that any intelligent man thinks that the words of the law mentioned here, like he says, Dibret Torah. What does what the Midrash Shir Hashirim mean when they say Dibret Torah? What, what, what topic in the Torah? Maimonides is telling you, I don't think it means requiring the application of Mishalim, of parables, in order to be understood. can refer to the rules for building a sukkah, for example, for preparing the Arba minim. Uh, or for the four kinds of trustees, the Shomerim, Shomer Hanam, Shomer Sakhar, Socher, and uh, I forgot the last, Sho'er, right? That's in Kama, etc. Haramam is saying when the Midrash says the words Dibret Torah, they're not talking about the standard garden variety Halakha. They're talking about something else. What is really meant is the apprehension of profound and difficult subjects. Concerning which, our sages said, if a man loses in his house a selah, or a pearl, suppose you have a coin, and, or a pearl. Both of them are very, very small. And let's say you lose it in your house. Now, mind you, at the time this was written, people did not have flooring in the house. They had dirt floors. So there's all these laws on Yom Tov as to whether you could sweep the floor to make it even on Yom Tov or not. It's called Khabed et Habayit. So if you drop something, not only was it just like in our case, it's just somewhere in a corner, but you could find it. It could have seeped into a hole or crevice or a little crack in the ground. And how are you going to search all? You have to search in 3D, right? That's hard. So if if a man loses in his house a selah or a pearl, he can find it by lighting a taper worth only one isar. So what do you need to do? You need to get like a flashlight. In their case, it was a, like a torch or a lamp, a ner. Now, the materials that compose a lamp are very, very cheap. So you could find a pearl, which is very, very expensive, using a light, that, of, that, which is very, very cheap. Thus, the parables in themselves are no, of no great value. But through them, the words of the holy law are rendered intelligible. So there's all these pearls lying on the ground. But you don't know how to see them. You can't see them. You take something really cheap, in, 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 relatively speaking, minuscule fraction of the value, but that thing which has no value really in and of itself allows you to see the pearls. By the way, I just can't help myself, so I'm going to digress for just a minute. Maimonides wrote a commentary on the Mishnah. It's called in Arabic, Kitab Siraj. Uh, You may know that the word Siraj means the book of the light, the book of the lamp. Shiraj is a Judeo-Arabic word that comes from Babylonian Jewish Aramaic. The word for lamp is Shiradah. You may have heard this Talmudic saying, it's famous, Shiradah lamit lamithhaze. At high noon, you can never see the light of a lamp, because the sun's light vastly overpowers it, right? That's why In many Jewish communities, the name Shraga is is popular. Shraga means a lamp. It's like equivalent to Meir in a way, right? So now, why does Harambam call his pirush on the Mishnayot Kitab Isiraj? Imagine you're in a cave or a house, and there's all these writing on the walls, but you can't read it because it's too dark. You You don't have the illumination that allows you to process the writing of the Mishnah. Comes Harambam, and he gives you a little lamp. You take the lamp, you put it next to the writing, and all of a sudden, it's very easy to read. That's why he calls it Kitab Isiraj. It's the exact same idea. Um, And like I said, a lot of what he did later uh, was pre-fashioned or prescient as to what he did in his youth. And he wrote the Pirusha Mishnah between the ages of 20 and 30. He wrote this book here, the, The Guide for the Perplexed at the Age of 65, who is a well-seasoned man. Okay, now, next slide. Okay, so you got to always look deeper. Continuing here with the introduction to the Guide for the Perplexed, because that, of course, is the best introduction I know to the subject of mysticism. The book, Guide for the Perplexed, is about how to acquire rabbinic mystical perception, nothing more. These, likewise, are the words of our sages. Consider well their statement that the deeper sense of the words of the holy law are pearls and the literal acceptation of a figure is of no value in itself. It means a metaphor taken literally doesn't help you. That's why people who take Midrashim literally, Bam, even in his 20s, he wrote the Haktamah to Perek Hailek and the shimonah Perakim. He's very critical of that large segment of the Jewish world who takes Midrashim literally. He's also critical of those who say they have no value. The real answer is in the middle. They compare the hidden meaning, including in the literal sense of the simile, to a pearl lost in a dark room, which is full of furniture. It is certain that the pearl is in the room, but the man can neither see it nor know where it lies. It is just as if the pearl was no longer in his possession, for, as has been stated, it affords him no benefit whatever until he kindles a light. Uh, that's the same thing. I'm not going to say it again. That's the Hebrew if you want to read it. Shir So the same is the case with the comprehension of that which the simile represents. Now, this is I love this. This is a mashal itself. It comes right out of Mishle. It's beautiful. The wise king said, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in vessels of silver. This is Mishle 2511. Here it is. I'm going to sing it because I love the way it sounds. Davar, al One more time. Davar, al Golden apples inside a silver filigree, like a silver mesh or screen. Very fine screen though. Big, big spaces, very small amount of metal. Davar, that's that refers to a word, Davur, spoken. That's the passive verb to speak, al on its orbits. So in his mind, in the mind of Shilawa Melech, he was thinking of astronomical orbits. But we have the same thing in subatomic particles or, or atoms. There's a nucleus, uh And they told you in school that it has protons and neutrons, but it has about 3,000 subatomic particles in that nucleus, Uh, quarks and uh, all kinds of things. Some of them live for a shorter time, some for a longer time. We have the same exact thing, The Electrons have orbits in both atoms and molecules. And a, a piece of matter has electrons both in the, in the near orbitals and the higher orbitals, and that fact contributes to how they operate with you. So you could just as well say, is an atom operating on its multiple orbits simultaneously. What he's telling you here is that words have polysemic aspects. They can say two things at the same time, and depending on who you are in the audience, you understand one or both. So uh, he's going to explain it now. Here's the explanation of what he said. The word maskiyot, the Hebrew equivalent for vessels, denotes filigree network, i.e. things in which there are very small apertures, such as are frequently wrought by silversmiths. They are called in Hebrew maskiyot, literally transpicuous from the verb saw the root which occurs also in the targum of ankelos, etc. So this is Friedlanders, uh, the translator in in English, he's added this. Because the eye penetrates through them, that's why they're called maskiot, it's related to the root of sakah, which means to see. Thus, Solomon meant to say, just as apples of gold in silver filigree with small apertures, so is a word fitly spoken. See how beautifully the conditions of a good simile are described in this figure. It shows that in every word which has a double sense, a literal one and a figurative one, The plain meaning must be as valuable as silver, and the hidden meaning still more precious, so that the figurative meaning bears the same relation to the literal one as gold to silver. The entire corpus of rabbinic mysticism is written in this way. When you first encounter it, you don't see the golden apple. You see the silver apple, which is the actual content processed or biased by the external filigree. Only later, when you get close enough that you can see through, and that's an aha moment, if ever there was one, you, and this happens successfully, it's not just one golden apple, it's, it's many, many, many pieces of gold, many golden apples. Over a lifetime, you see more and more of the gold, and you realize that what you thought you saw before was just the silver biasing or affecting the way you perceived the kernel. It is further necessary that the plain sense of the phrase shall give to those who consider it, some notion of that which the figure represents. <clears throat> Just as a golden apple overlaid with a network of silver when seen at a distance or looked at superficially is mistaken for a silver apple, but when a keen sighted person looks at the object well, he will find what is within and see that the apple is actually gold. The same is the case with the figures employed by the prophets. Taken literally, such expressions contain wisdom useful for many purposes, among others, for the amelioration of the condition of society, like the, the Mishalim of Mishlei and similar sayings in their literal sense. Their hidden meaning, however, is profound wisdom, conducive to the recognition of real truth. What is required to understand the hidden meanings? You need to somehow escape your preconceptions, Harambam calls that, using the, Arab, the Greek word apophasis, and Hacham Fa'ur, in dividing up his book Homo Mysticus, has four pieces. The first piece is called apophasis, and in that first piece is the narrative of the Masech uh, al-Hagiga vision of the Merkaba that we're going to study, including uh, several people. One, four of them are the four who entered the Pardes, the Arba'an, Pardes. This is akin to all of a sudden realizing you're in a matrix, to use our modern cultural reference, and trying to look over it. You you know you're in the matrix. You're trying to see above it what's really there. Put another way, like Patriarch Abraham, you have to challenge your intellectual conventionalisms. I just want to show you one thing about that.
0: You share. Uh, Abraham. So this is, can you see the Mishneh Torah?
1: No, we're still looking at the presentation.
0: Okay. I'll do a new share again. You
1: stop share. If you can stop share. Yeah, okay. we go, stop share, and then if you share again.
0: Okay, I see.
1: Nice. We now see your folder.
2: So I clicked on something in the folder, and I'm not sure why it's hard to... Let's see what's in the zoom. And all you see is the folder, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll just tell you what it says. So in the Mishneh Torah, Hanambam, first chapter in Abodazara, Sefer Hamada, the first one, he tells the history of how Abodazara began. And he also tells the history of very, very, after a while, only a few people recognized the existence of God, like Hanoch, Metushelach, Noach, Shem, and Ibed. Uh, and this went on until Abraham was born. What was the big thing about Abraham? Have you heard that old story from the Midrash that his father used to sell idols and he smashed them? So that's a parable. I don't know if Terach really sold idols. I don't think he did. What was smashed? What was smashed were the conventionalisms. And that's what I wanted you to see, the footnote of Rabbi Yosef Kafir, Because I only know two people in my lifetime who ever got this right. One was Fa'ur, and I was very happy to see that Yosef Kafir echoed it in his footnote about, on the in, in my second, I mean, about Abraham, he said, uh, this is a dirasha in Nedarim 32a. When Abraham was three years old, he recognized his creator, Kilomar. In other words, the sense of critical analysis was natural in him. And he was able to judge things. And the first thing, uh, the first act you must do, the mental act you must do to understand things is to doubt the conventionalisms of your day. And now the, the second chapter of the de Nebuchim is all about that. Eating from the Es Bara is nothing more than embracing conventionalisms. And the Torah comes to cure the sin of eating from the Es the, the tree of knowledge, by showing you how to see it not for what you imagine it is, but what it actually is, which is the same, one and the same, as the Ayas hahayim There were two trees, there were two perceptions, and the clouded, distorted perception of Adam and Eve saw it as a uh, as a dot instead of as a height. So now let's see. I need, okay. Here we go back to share screen and back to the things. I hope you can see now. Can you tell me if you see the slides again? Yep. Okay, good. So that's easy. So the moral of the story: put everything in the slide deck. Don't go to external sources. Now. This happens, so one more time, put another way, like Patriarch Abraham, you have to challenge your intellectual conventionalisms. You just can't say what everybody says because you heard the refrain or the slogan or the dogma and you kind of understand it. You never really tried to penetrate it. That doesn't work for mystical understanding. This happens successively. It happens over time, like Maimonides' description of lightning flashes in a dark night sky. It's in Fa'ur's book. It's in the Moren de Bukhim. I'm not going to go into it right this moment. Remember that, but what I want you all to do is remember this mashal as we study Masechet Hagiga. Now, I'm dating myself, but I used to love the movie The Karate Kid, which came out in 1984. As Mr. Miyagi once said way back in 1984, oh, Daniel-san, things not always as seen. He obviously was a Japanese individual. He was actually Okinawan. The actor was Okinawan. If you want to watch that scene, you can watch it here. When Daniel first has an apophasis, and he realizes that what Mr. Miyagi is teaching him is not about carpentry or painting or sanding wood or waxing and polishing automobiles, but actually defensive moves in karate. He didn't realize that for the three months he was doing it. In one day, poof, Mr. Miyagi kind of shook him a little bit mentally, and he realized that what he was being taught was defensive blocks in karate, not waxing and painting and sanding, et cetera. Okay, good. So the key is to see the golden apple through the mesh. What is required to see it? So depth psychology, which is the branch of psychology founded by Carl Jung and has many students. I don't know why this is so, but I know it's significant. About half of them were Jews. Somehow, the, the Jewish mind either had a seed in it already, or it lends itself to what Jung called depth psychology, and, and there's various constructs they make that makes it easier to understand this, the human psyche. I'm, I was surprised when I saw this, but I'm not surprised now. So depth psychology calls this individuation. And you'll have Jungian analysts, some of the second generation who write entire books about individuation. We had this concept 2,000 years earlier. We called it kone olamon. Now, kone is the shoresh kof nun he. Most people think it means to buy. But it originally meant to form or create. That's why God is kone shamayim ba'aris. He, he doesn't have to buy the cosmos from anybody. He formed the cosmos. And that's why when Cain um, was born, Hava, Eve, named him Cain, and she said, Kaniti ish et alonai. I formed a man with God because she was smart enough to know whatever carry hangover she had from this esadad debacle, she was smart enough to know that we don't create the biology. That we live under we can reproduce but we didn't make the rules of reproduction we have no say in the matter whatsoever we just have the say whether we use our bodies in that way or not right so she was aware kone, kone ish with god now ordinarily people are objective they follow definite patterns of thought and feeling oh this is homo as again uh, in, the, in the introduction ordinarily people are objective They follow definite patterns of thought and feeling. Their behavior and ideas can be categorized and valued according to generally agreed criteria, intellectual, social, political, and so on. Like, everybody knows uh, about climate change. Although there are people who challenge some of the conclusions, you don't hear about them. Why? Because that's not the convention. For whatever reason, people don't want you to hear the... People who are criticizing the climate change models. I don't know of anybody on the planet who doesn't say the climate changes, but some people say it's not as anthropogenic as some people will tell you. So, even in the world of rationality, of science, of physics, even, there are conventions. Uh, the realm of mysticism escapes objectivity, it involves a crisis of choice. The road bifurcates, demanding subjective judgment, thus creating a defining moment, a unique now. Those having the courage to face it, rather than escape to the realm of conventionalities, would be rewarded by a brilliance piercing the thick darkness, an instant of mystical illumination. It is at this now that individuals discover, more precisely forge, their true identities, Homo mysticus is one who has forged his or her own individualistic type of perfection in the language of the Chachamim, Kana Olamo. Now, I want to study two stories with you from the first chapter of Abodah Zarah. One is about a Jew who was a complete, we call it zanai, or in Spanish, mujeriego, that means a womanizer, a total, complete womanizer. That was his only concern. That's what he did every day of his life. He didn't show, it wasn't Shomer Misfot particularly, I don't think maybe at all. Um, and he, Kana or in a second. The second is a Gentile who is referred to as Kilastonire in Talmudic Aramaic, which is a, a borrowing of and transformation of the Latin word inquisitor, he was a torturer. And when they would execute you, they would first torture you to make an example of you. And he was an inquisitor of the famous Rabbi Hanina ben Teradion. if you ever heard of him. He was the father-in-law of Rabbi Meir. He's the father of the famous uh, Beruria. If you heard of Beruria, she was the wife of Rabbi Meir and the daughter of Hanina, Hanina ben Teradion. Both of these are in Abu Dazara. We have to know, you have to ask yourself, if you want to see the golden apple, you have to ask yourself, not what is just what does this suya say, why is it here? It doesn't have a whole lot to do with Abu Dazara, which is the nominal title of this Masechet. Why is it here? I'm not going to answer it now. Now let's see. Okay, I'm going to go over a little bit of the structure, but then we need to read the sugya word for word. So I, we're going to have to wait until the screen shares to it. So this is Abu Dazara 17A, the first of the two stories, Ribil Azar bin Dardoya. It has three parts and an epilogue. Part A: the factual narrative. It makes a journey to a high-class call girl. Something happens during the act. That symbolizes to him his life and his prospects. He's terribly, terribly um, depressed about it. He leaves her, and he asks three beings to ask mercy on his behalf. He doesn't feel that he has any standing to ask God's mercy. They each refuse, saying that they would be better off to ask God's mercy for themselves. But they don't. They just tell him, we can't help you, because before we can help you, we would have to ask mercy for ourselves. C. He has a wholesale transformation. Leaves his preconceptions behind. Does Teshubah and dies in an instant. A bath kol, a heavenly voice, which is a kind of junior prophecy. Proclaims is invited to a life in Olam Haba. Epilogue. When Rabbenu HaKadosh hears this, he weeps and he's amazed. It bothered him. Now I have to we have to study this again. So stop, share, share screen. Uh, that's inquisitor. Let's see if I can pull this up.
0: Doradaya. Let me know if you could see it.
1: Not yet. No. When you, sh- when you share screen, there should be a few options of the, the image that we can see. So you could pick on Dordaya as a, for example. So okay. You before you, yeah. So when you pick on share it gives different options. Okay. So
2: let me do this now. Let's try this. So now I, I see what happens. I think I have to open the file first before the share. Yeah, I can't go I can't sense. go into my folder. Yep. Okay. Let's try this now. Here's Dordaya.
1: Can you see it? It's just loading. Yep, we see it. Okay, what are
2: you looking at? This is Gemara, but it's not the standard Gemara you're used to. What is this? This is a copy of a Masseket, which was dictated by Alpe by heart in the year 770 in southern Spain by a prince of the yeshiva. Uh, I forgot his name. Natrona Ehanasi is his name, not Natrona Egaon, but Natrona Ehanasi. He had a fight with somebody in Babylonia about who should become the next Gaon. It didn't go well for him. He runs to the other end of the earth, all the way to the west in southern Spain. This was purchased by A.S. <clears throat> Yehuda, who was a famous Babylon—I mean Baghdadi living in Jerusalem, HaHam. And somehow it got into the hands of the Jewish Theological Seminary, and it was published in the 50s, I think, by Professor Alexander Marx. That's what you're looking at. This manuscript is a manuscript. This is a copy of a Andalusian Spanish manuscript. So I'm going to start here. The story starts here. Uh, the general context is, in some instances, when you confess your sins for abu d'azara, you immediately die. And uh, the question of the, of the suga is, ume Abera lambdaid what about other sins besides awdazara doesn't you don't think you could die when you confess your, your non awdazara non idolatrous sins we have a barata a tanneric formulation amru alav al azar bin dar doya shalahni ahzanam kulo shalah ba alaha alaha this, this is a baraita. this is a Tana'elik formulation made by Tana'im for us to, to study. So this is important. They said on el Azar bin Dardoya that he didn't leave one whore in the entire world that he didn't mount once. All right? Pa so once, one time, he heard of a whore, a call girl, in a far-off um, seaside town. And she took a large number of gold coins as her fee. In order to make his way to get to her, he had to pass seven rivers. It was a, a long way away. At the time of the act, now the Hebrew word is hergel, it means common. It means, it's a common act, it's a biological act, right? Especially if you're with a uh, uh, hooker, there's no emotion in it, right? Hergel, though, I wanted to point out to you, is a Latin borrowing from the word rule. Regla in Spanish, uh, and in Latin, regulum probably means rule. So, Hergel is something that follows the normal rules. That's Hifriha. Uh, she had some intestinal gas and it escaped during the act. Now, I don't know why this had, like, he took it as a bad omen. Remember, he's a whoremonger, he's not a haham. So, a lot of these folks are superstitious in a way, and he must have been unconsciously very bar- bar- bothered. What the heck did I do with my life? All I do is chase hookers. And, you know, what kind of life is that? When you leave this world, what, what cognitive structures have you created in your soul that you can use in the next dimension? Nothing. Bothered him. After a while, it bothers you. Even these type of people, they know something is wrong. So when she broke wind during the, in, you know, the intimate act, it meant something to him so he said, just like this gas cannot return to its place, similarly, al Azar bin Dardoya, they will never accept him to do tishwa. So he thinks he's out. He has no, no options. He will not go to Ulam Haba. Allah, Fiyasha bin He went and sat between some mountains and hills. Amar, Harimu Ba'od. He said, please, mountains and hills, could you ask mercy from God, obviously, on my behalf? Before we could ever ask any mercy for you, we should ask mercy for ourselves, because there's a pasuk in Yeshaya that says, The uh, mountains will be uh, extinguished, they'll wither away, and the uh, give out the high places will also. It's another word for wither away, move away. And so the pasuk, there's a pasuk that says, and what's the context of this? God is saying, one day the mountains will no longer be here, and these hills they will have withered and been long gone. But you, Israel, I will always look out for your welfare. That's what God's saying. That's the message of Yeshaya. There's a golden apple here. I won't tell you until a little later, maybe to figure it out. Uh So, uh, let's see. Okay. Amar, Shamayim Va'aris. So now he addresses the earth and the sky and the heavens. Bakkeshu'ala Rahamim. Please, Shamayim Va'aris, please ask mercy for me. Amrullah, both of them said to him, Ad she'anu m'Bakshi m'Rahamim alaykha and M'Bakkesh Rahamim al'Asminu. Before we could ever ask mercy on your behalf, we have to ask mercy on our behalf. Shine'a Amar, Kishammaim ki ashan Oh, a similar Pasuk is the first one. Why, even though the heavens will wither away like smoke and et cetera, et cetera, the, the land will be gone, I will still value you, O Israel. This is what God speaks to Israel. The last approach. Now I have to tell you, this is the I like the manuscript version because it's unadulterated. Many of the printed girsav, the gemara, is adulterated. It's been changed by several pious hands, thinking it's improving it, but it doesn't really improve it at all. So that forces us to do uh, manuscript research when we study Talmud. There are only three asks here. He asks three beings. Hill, harim ubaot, hills and, and uh, mountains. The next one is shamaim uh, ba'aris. And the third one is hamaul banah, the, the sun and the moon. In the printed manuscripts, there's four. But this is a sugya mishulesha. This is a sugya that is structured in threes. Putting a fourth wood would make it out of balance. In our midrash, as Fa'ur taught us, you always need to know the structure before you know the content. So if you see three in a manuscript, and you see four in printing or, or other manuscripts, you know something's wrong. So the four, the, there's a fourth one which doesn't fit. It's, it's extra. So, I like this manuscript. So, now, what did the sun and the moon tell him? <inaudible> the same speech, because there's a pasuk that, that predicts our demise too. Uh, what is it? Uh, <inaudible> Etc. There's another pasuk in Yeshaya that talks about. Uh, At one point, uh, God will take vengeance on everybody. He uses the words uh, uh, sun and moon or heavenly bodies to refer to political, powerful nations. And the message of Yeshayaz in chapter 24 is, even though Israel is a minuscule nation, it has no real power. In the end, I will erase the powerful and I will... Uh, judge in your favor in, in Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt, etc. So that's the third one. Uh, so then, El Azar Ben Dardoya, who's just has no title right now in this story, he's just Azar Ben Dardoya, the whoremonger. So he said, The thing doesn't, it only depends on me. He put his head between his knees and cried out. Like, you know, Ga'a is like onomatopoeic a little bit. It's like, oh, like that. That's why Ga'a to the Hebrew ear sounds like people crying out in agony. He was crying out in agony with tears until his neshama left and he died. Now, careful, look at this. The neshama still exists, just went somewhere. It left the body. It's not that he ceased to exist. He did inherit de haba. So a bakol, a heavenly prophetic message, emerged and said, now I have to switch to the other part.
0: Share screen, and here's Dorb
2: Very good. I hope you can see this. Let me know if you cannot. Yep, we can see it. Okay. It says, Rabbi al Azar. the heavenly voice added a title. He calls him Rabbi. Rabbi al Azar bin Dardoya mizuman Hayah alam haba. He is invited for an eternal existence. He is invited to live in alam haba. Uh, I'm going to skip this. This is a comment that relates to the prior part, which we studied the whole sugya. When he heard it, B'chah Rabbi Rabbeinu Hakadosh cried. and olamo Hakadosh was waiting for a enlight- a moment of enlightenment where he would know that he found himself, that he too totally individuated. He was trained by his father from, from childhood to do what he did to create the Mishnah, in fact. He's, he was trained from childhood, uh, taught among the rabbis as a kid. He didn't go out and play ball or cricket or soccer, what you all call football. He was in the Bet Midrash sitting on his father's knee. He was, of course, Rabban Shimon ben Damli El II. And he was trained for what he did. So in a way, it was conventional although it was elite and it was masterful, but in his family, he was following the convention. He always wondered, did I fully individuate or did I just fill out the role that my ancestors, starting from Hillel, carved out for me? That's, what, that's what's bothering him. So, he, so when he heard this story, uh, obviously the the pre-existed, Rabbenu HaKadosh and his Bedin collecting all the Tanitic material, b he cried. And then he said after he kind of calmed down a bit, he said, It's a it's a question and is no answer. He said, It's not enough that they take. I mean, after a lifetime of debauchery, they accept this guy into Alam Haba, and a heavenly voice vouches for him, but the heavenly voice calls him to be. That's what they call me. So, I spent all these years doing the Mishnayot and being the Nasi, and promoting the Torah and this whoremonger, in a moment of epiphany, is and goes straight to Olam Haba. So it bothered him a little bit. He he's When he says that some people don't acquire their world acquire their individual perspective for many years he's talking about himself okay very good so i think i'm just going to wrap review this a little bit oh let me see i have to do the screen sharing in this back to the let's see where are the
0: no you don't see that show all windows
2: here we go okay i think you can see this now the slides right Yep. Okay, good. So let me go over the story again. Now, I I give you the structure. It's like a sandwich. That's what we teach Talmud. We give the structure. It's a little bit abstract when you first hear it because you may or may not know the text. We study the text. Then we go back to the structure, and you will see things you didn't see before. So it has three parts. Factual narrative. He's a guy who chased every whore on earth, and he finds out about a very high-class call girl. He has to have her. He crosses seven rivers. He brings the exorbitant fee of various dinarim. A dinar was a a huge coin, I mean, in value. It was gold. Something happens during the act. And to him, his symbolic power. Now, i got to tell you, in the printed versions, she is the one who says, in response to her own Um, you know breaking wind that he's not going to get into alam haba that's ridiculous how would a whore know anything about alam haba for an israelite for a a rabbinite jew no he says it so it's happening in his mind he's living an act which is real but in his mind there's a mental component a semantic component that is symbolized by the act okay part b he leaves and, and he's despondent because he pretty much thinks this is an omen. I'm not going to go to Allah Haba. He asks three natural beings. They're all part of the natural world. They don't have free choice. That's why they answer the way they answer. He says to the mountains and the hills, to the sun and the moon, to the, uh, what was the other one? The Shama'in Ba'aris, the earth and the heaven. Could you ask mercy for me? I don't know why he thought they had more standing than he, but they said, we, we can't ask anything for you until we ask for ourselves. And then the quota Pasuk, which speaks of their inevitable demise at the end of time, which means there's we don't have any hope for ever changing God's plan or program about our end. We know our end is real. You are different. You're not governed by nature as we are. You're, you have a certain freedom. You have a certain... Uh, Selam elohim you have the power to change your own program and if you change your program god answers it's you who do the act first so that's the point of that he thought like someone who believes in karma his karma is horrible let me go to natural beings and that's why this is an because this is not worshiping the three things but it's a it has a carryover of this idolatrous assumption that these natural beings have choice and have consciousness and have an in with God, maybe God and them share a ground of being. So that's why it's in Masihat Abu That's a big mistake. <clears throat> on, the, on the moment he figured out that there's no karma, he immediately inherits Olam Abba. That was the Kone'a Olamo ala, epiphany for him. <clears throat> so see, he has a wholesale transformation leaves his preconceptions behind. We would call that in our fa'ur homo mysticus lingo, apophasis. He had a profound apophasis. His mind changed. The reality didn't change, but his perception of it changed. He saw it through to the golden apple, in a way. And the heavens, to tell all of us, in the yeshiva, in Eretz Israel in the, in the yeshiva of Rabbenu HaKadosh, What happened? Because it doesn't say how Rabbeinu HaKadosh knew about this. Who told him? This guy was by himself in a far-off land, far, far away, near this this elite call girl, and he dies with his head between his legs. Now, I want to tell you one thing about what does that mean. Here's an example of apophasis. When you hear put his head between his legs, I'm guessing most of you think, you imagine a guy sitting in a chair, And then they, you know, some medical professionals tell you, put your head between your knees and get calm or something. These people didn't sit on chairs. Only kings sat on chairs. They were thrones. They sat on the floor. We say in Judeo-Arabic with their legs crossed, like in a lotus position. So what does it mean to put your head between your knees? It means you're prostrating, like in the Amida, like in the actual law of the Amida. You know how the Muslims bow down and they put their head on the ground? That is putting your head between your knees, because when you're in that position, the head kind of is right between the knees. It's just like when you see the Muslims in the Temple Mount, uh, you know, the Allahu Akbar, that's the sh- uh, shujo, I think they call it, it means to bow down. So that's what that means. So he put his head between his knees in a moment of prostration to bore olam like we do in the tahalunim. Okay. He has a wholesale transformation, leaves his preconception behind, does teshuah and dies. And a bat kol from heaven informed the other Hahamim what happened to this guy. And he refers to him with the title of and they all understood very, very well what that means. And some of them were bothered because they have yet to experience the Enlightenment. Okay, so I think we'll stop there. Uh, that's plenty of time. We'll get, next time, we'll pick up with that other story of, of uh, the Inquisitor, and we'll continue to the uh, – so next time is going to be that story. I'm going to study another sugya with that same manuscript. It's a one duff later, and it's on a similar theme, but this time it's a Gentile executioner interacting with Hanina ben Teradon, who, of course, we all know is going to Olam Haba. The question is, does the executioner also go to Olam Haba? To do that, he has to abandon all of his values. Everything he thinks is real has to go away, and then he does. Now, next time we will start with Mishnah Hagiga, with Harabam. We'll study the Tosefta Hagiga with Haham Fa'ur. I want you to be careful, though. This Mishnah has both a silver mesh on it, and a golden apple inside it. Even when Harambam in the Pirusha Mishnah tells you the explanation of this Mishnah Hagiga, chapter 2, Mishnah 1, Halakha 1, he is not telling you the golden apple. He's telling you the silver apple. You have to figure out the golden apple. And if you read what I wrote up above on the slides... You'll hopefully you can figure out what I mean. It's, it's both the golden apple and the distorted silver apple at the same time. The explanation you find in the Kitab Isiraj of Harabam is the non-golden apple one. It's valuable. It has a, a useful, the explanation is useful. And if you think that's what it means, it's still the practice of the way they did the Dorshim is is fine, but there's more to it. There's something. There's a kernel there that the Mishnah is not telling you, and that's why the Moneh deals with this. These texts, and they're very. They're very few of them, but that's why he writes a whole book to tell you about rabbinic mysticism. So uh, we'll leave it there. If there's any questions, I can have a couple of minutes for questions.
1: Thank you so much, ah. uh, I think I speak on behalf of everyone to say that you've kickstarted our process of apophysis with this shiur. Um <laughs> I'm going to just check the chat to see some of the questions that were asked.
2: Ah, now I see it. Okay, let me see if I can read it. Okay, how does this pasuk relate to the golden doves? Ah, so the Tore Zahab is exactly the same idea as Tapuha Zahab Maskiot Kasef. Why did I explain the latter pasuk? not the Golden Doves pasuk, because I'm quoting Bam from the introduction to the uh, the Lalit al-Ha'irin. He picked that pasuk because that pasuk is more elegantly Nidrash in Shir Hashirim Rabbah. Yes, uh, the Golden Doves pasuk is also the subject of the first chapter of Shir Hashirim Rabbah, but not for this, for the revelation at Sinai. What was going on in the mind if you were standing there at Sinai? That's Golden Doves. Are the golden apples to be perceived or to be imposed on the silver? No, the golden apples are inside it. Imagine, this is a kind of an objet d'art, which they had in the ancient world. There's a, We have it in some of these grandfather clocks that are small, that could sit on the desk, if you've ever seen them. There's a clock inside, and then there's a mesh around it. It looks like a cylinder. And then there's like, a, it could be glass top or a wood top. And with a little handle in the middle, that's what this is like. There was a suspended golden apple from a cover. You imagine a cylinder. And the cylinder, the surface of the cylinder is a silver mesh. And so when you stood, it was like an interesting illusion. When you stood, when you first entered the room, you saw the like apple as silver. When you got closer, you saw it as golden. That was a common, you know, adornment, fancy furniture in the days of Shalom HaMelech. That's why he does that. <clears throat> <clears throat> on, uh, so I think Shalom Saka is asking, is that the one on free, uh, Friedberggenizad.org, which they call Bet Midrash Rabbanim. The one they write in, in Hebrew letters, not pictures of the manuscript, is not that one. But I think they do display it, or on the Hebrew use site, which displays manuscripts of the Talmud, online treasury of Talmudic manuscripts, you can get this at Abu Dazara. Is this story attracted Abu Dazara taken literally by most? I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Or is it considered by some to be an example of a mashal of some sort? I think I take this dar doya, I think it's literal. I think it actually happened. But it it gives you two orbits let's call it two of of the story there's your biological events that you experience and there's your mind's perception of those do they what meaning do they have for you in his case a simple biological act which is totally common that's why the word hergel is there although Her- hergel refers to the uh, you know sexual intimacy act but the fact that people sometimes have gas is very normal that's a mundane story it's so big deal. He goes to a high-class hooker and she, you know, the experience wasn't as fancy as you thought it was going to be. He took it a totally different way. He took it as an omen. That's the point.
0: Uh,
2: do you have any theories as to who went, they would have made that addition to the Gemara? Ah, the Gemara that we have um, is all based on the Venice edition, the the um, uh, printing in Diffus Venezia, it's called. And you can buy a copy of the Diffuse Venezia. It's better than the one you buy now, the Vilna edition. But it still has many, many errors. Why? It was published by Bomberg. And who did he hire to edit it? Two apostates. Uh, their names were Felix Pratensis. That's their their going name. They became Christians. And uh, I forgot the other guy's name. But Fa'ur talks about it in the uh, Horizontal Society and they made mistakes on every single page. Where, what, what was their source text? Must have been handwritten things from northern Spain after sometime after the Talmud was burned in, in uh, France, in Montpellier, and the anti-Mamonideans uh, got their hands on the text of the Talmud. Would you say that hamas of the Arbonai is a continuation of what Harabam is teaching? No, that's a different topic. It it's, has some commonality, but it is not really a, a, a Moren de type book. Uh, Abraham ben Harambam did not intend to do anything more on the subject of the Moren He did practices which bring you closer to the mental processes that Harabam describes, yes, Okay. Very good. Okay. Share the slides. So Sina has the slides. He can publish it in the Habura. He has uh, admin privileges. I don't. And uh, I'm glad. I hope everybody enjoyed it. These are really wonderful texts, and they have many layers of meaning. And although I hear people just, you know, they try to deal with it, but it takes hours and hours, and it's it's like mining that deep sweet, wonderful, well that Shalom HaMelech helped us all access long time ago. Thank you very much, and we'll see thank you, you so any, much. same time next week. Same, yes. ba- same bad channel. Same bad
1: time. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Thank you very much. and Everybody, the, the source sheet will be on the Chaborab uh, members platform under the video, under the audio, where the source sheet usually is. Um, so all will be accessible there. Hacham again, thank you so much. I think I'm going home to review now because that was... Uh, Fantastic. Thank so you here's a little
2: here. hint. You, you want to review in context those three Pisukim from Yishaya, which the three natural entities quoted to El Azar bin Dardoya. Of course, that only happened in his mind, right? That's it happening in his mind. The, the heavens don't speak to you,
1: right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Given the a, extra perspective that we usually don't get when we go through the sugyot. So thank you so much. Okay. Have very a wonderful nice. day. And everybody, uh, see you same time next week. Uh, we have class, obviously, on Wednesday. Rabbi is going to be doing introduction to Mr. Lati Sharim. And then we have Rabbi Faul starting Talmud classes next Monday. Um, everybody can stay up to date on the Discord app, as well as the WhatsApp announcement groups. Thank you very, very much. Good night from okay. London. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.
0: That's all for now, folks. Have a wonderful day.